Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Greetings and welcome to Paradise Island. This is Under Consultation, an episode-by-episode podcast-type situation through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, looking forward to this Castlevania Symphony of the Night review. And looking forward to sharing those proto-hot takes on Castlevania Symphony of the Night. I mean, really, that is what this entire episode is building towards. I am Ash versus. Yeah, this is basically like, do you remember in the early days of this when we were like, we're on the countdown to the Dave Perry incident? That's what this whole episode is now. It's just one big countdown. Everyone is just going to be sat there hearing us talk about Men in Black for a bit. When are they going to get to the Castlevania factory? So on episode zero, we got as far as the end of June and here we are. It's July and appropriately, Luke, I believe on the 4th of July, we get some fireworks. What took you? Oh, it took a day just to get keys. You know I'm slow the up down at council office. Did you do the shopping? Oh no, this is Scotch Miss. Hey, don't cheat your dad. Well, are you opening up then or what? You've got keys. No, you've got the key. It's handy for the rovers anyway. Oh, they're pocket. These are for you, Mum. Oh, lovely. Oh, very nice. Bet she hasn't got me out. Dad. What? Happy birthday. Well, if it were going begging... You're thieving, Gates. Oh, hi, Janice. Oh, hello, Mr Baldwin. Moving in, are you? Yeah, this is my lot. Les, have you met Mr Baldwin? All right. 
This is our Toya. And our Liam. Oh, is that him? Toya? Oh, Marlo. Have you met your new neighbours? Hello. We do indeed, yes, because the Battersby family described by the media as the family from hell make their debut on Coronation Street. As has been covered quite a few times on this podcast, we were a Corrie household. We didn't watch no EastEnders. We didn't watch no Emmerdale Farm. We were a Corrie household through and through. And I remember the hype for the Battersby family arriving in Weatherfield and the promos that they did and bits of piece they did on the news about it. And they showed up and they were brilliant, brilliant characters. They became very iconic to the show to the point where here we are 2023. Two of them are still there. Leanne Battersby and Toya Battersby are still on Coronation Street in the year 2023, which is quite remarkable. They were also the characters that were probably the most, like, remembered, I suppose, because Leanne starts the relationship with Nick, so you have the Battersby and Tilsley feud, but you've also got Toya falling into a relationship with Spider, the eco-warrior Spider, and all this sort of stuff. So they got some really, really good storylines, and actually, like, Leanne and Nick's storyline was really, really good, and it kind of led to a lot of, you know, very iconic storylines from this period of time within Coronation Street, and I just remember the hype surrounding their debut. I was, as we've established, you were the Corrie household, I was the Enders household. I remember the hype around the Battersby family. I also seem to remember some people saying that this was a direct way of actually creating a higher level of drama on the street to directly compete with some of the more explosive antics going on on Albert Square, you know, including Dot Cotton feeling like she murdered her best friend Ethel for assisting her with her passing. So, yeah, we got the Battersby family. I Yeah, I, I would say that's probably the case of it as well, that, you know, they sort of sat down and were like, we need something here. We need to have something big and explosive and fireworks flying so we can create drama. And they did create drama. You know, it wasn't just Les and Janice butting heads with other people. It was the, all the Leanne and uh, Toya stuff as well. How long did they kind of reign supreme? in Corrie. I mean, how long before they just became another part of the furniture? I feel like with Les and Janice, certainly, like, after a couple of years, they just sort of, like, they're just there now. Like, I haven't watched Corrie in a number of years, so I've no idea what Leanne and Toya are currently up to, but I would imagine they're just, like you say, just part of the furniture at this point. A quick look, when did Les leave? 2000, uh, 2008. Uh, oh, that was voice only. 2007 is when he left the show. So he had a 10-year run. Just reading this here. In 2007, Les walked out on his family to go on tour with a tribute band to ZZ Top of the Morning. That's an amazing name for a ZZ Top tribute act. That's great, yeah. Les walked out on his family to go on tour with tribute band ZZ Top of the Morning and never returned. Oh, this is interesting, actually. So Bruce Jones, who was the actor, uh, was actually suspended from the show because he was selling stories to newspapers. Ooh, it's the whole Wagatha Christie thing, but with soap operas. Exactly, yeah. So apparently that's what he was doing. He was selling stories, and then he got suspended from the show, and then he left. So I can't find anything about his band, though. (laughs) I just love the fact that he's just like, we have to write him out. What are we going to do? Let's give him something undignified. Let's say he went off to be part of a ZZ Top tribute act. Hey, who knows? Maybe 
maybe we should actually kind of do like a cultural exchange hands across the water. Maybe we should do a Corrie Christmas special for this coming Christmas. That'd be really nice. Yeah, basically, we'd be like the Christmas special 1998, I guess, or maybe 1997. We'll work out which year that we do. A good one. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I can't remember them, but yeah, I'm sure they're all great. And just for the sake of completion, uh, Janice's last appearance was March of 2011. How did she end? I think she just left. I think she just went to Liverpool. Four. That's harsh. <laughs> so anyway, that was the Battersby's, but the day after... Now, this is a bit of a mad one, this. V-Rally tops the video game charts. Now, on the surface of things, that doesn't sound all that mad. Yeah, but considering there's been some really big games coming out in 1997, V-Rally topping the charts you know, maybe for a week or so. No, it stays top of the video game charts until August 9th. And you're like, wow, it got a whole full month there. No, it was only knocked off for one week because it then returned to the top of the charts on August 16th and remained there until September 13th. Ash, what the fuck happened? Why were people so madly into V-Rally? I mean, this game was popular. This game was bank. This game did well with the reviews. It did well with the public. I suspect a lot of people bought this with their consoles. Maybe it was actually included in a couple of bundles, and that would explain mm. why it sold so many copies. Because if it's an unofficial bundle, if it's not an official Sony bundle, if it's a Curry's, an electronic boutique, a game bundle, that sale will still count towards the individual sales. But I've actually got the Games Master magazine review for V-Rally here, where it also goes head-to-head with another rally game of the time, Rally Cross. It gets a two-page spread here, and they even talk about one of the more unique features, which is it's got split-screen racing, Luke. I mean, hey, that's what you want. That bad bloody time. It doesn't just have split-screen racing, though. It has two different kinds. Do you prefer your split horizontal or vertical? On a 14-inch TV, I think I probably would have taken vertical. Well, that could have been your option with V-Rally. It offered both. What would you have taken, vertical or horizontal? Um, I would have gone with the horizontal split. Yeah. Because particularly with something like a, a rally game, I want to see those corners coming. Yeah, I guess so. I just feel like it would be too squashed up top, but I don't think the, I don't think the vertical one's going to particularly help with that case either. I mean, on a modern widescreen TV, I'd take a vertical split because you could still get a pretty good kind of like aspect yeah. ratio in there. But do you want to hear how the review goes? I do indeed. Cool, well, this is reviewed by one Andy Smith, I don't believe related to our Patreon Andy. Graphics, stunning scenery and very nice tricks. Not that you'll have much time to admire either. 90%. So that's mm-hmm. solid and respectable. Absolutely. Sounds, dreadful music that only someone with no taste could like. The engine is 2CV rather than Ferrari, 70%. It's a bit of a dip, but that's kind of like, feels like a Micro Machines V3 level of like, yeah, car sounds aren't all that nice to listen to. Gameplay, you've got to be in the driving seat. Show the car who's boss and it will respect you for it, 90%. Okay, so that's 90, 70, 90. Wow. Lifespan, with so many courses and modes, you'll be at it for ages and coming back for more. Diamondism. 90%. 90%. So that's three 90s and a 70. Judgment, a terrific rally simulation with the emphasis on the simulation. Smart, realistic, and very satisfying. So is that a case of it being 90%? 
given that it's three yeah yeah three nineties and a seventy. I would have thought it would have been ninety again. It is indeed ninety percent. But then we flip over to Rallycross, also on the PlayStation. Two very similar games coming out at the same time. This one, it's not a bad game. But to summarise, graphics get eighty. Sounds get 80, which means it's actually slightly better, and they save with sounds. Each car has a lovely throaty roar. The suspension squeaks like an old bed too. Gameplay, 79, so definitely dipping down on that mm-hmm. one. Frustrating to start with and hard to work out where you're going, but it gets better. Lifespan, 77. Overall, more like a cartoon than a simulation, but certainly enjoyable. The four-player mode doesn't live up to expectation, however, 79%. So yeah, even though it was offering something a bit unique in a four-player mode, can't quite do it. You'd have thought as well the four-player would have really edged it somewhat there. But yeah, it sounds like just the gameplay is what really lets it down, particularly when compared to V-Rally. And I think if you've got both of them at the same time, and maybe you play V-Rally, then go to play Rally Cross, you're like, oh, actually, this plays like dog shit compared to V-Rally. Maybe it would have done better had it come out in a different month, perhaps. One of the things they say specifically regarding to the multiplayer in the full review is that the second biggest problem with the game is when you're in two or multiplayer mode because it supports a multi-tap for the full four-player experience. Unless you've selected the in-cockpit view mode, you'll find that other cars can completely block your view. So Uh... they've zoomed it in enough that a car in front of you means you just, you can't see where you're going, you can't see what you're doing. So then we come to this page, which is a head-to-head page, and it's where they compare V-Rally and Rallycross on a number of different features, very different to just your graphics or sound, breaks it down into individual gameplay components. So for example, we have multiplayer. Rallycross, it gives five out of 10. V-Rally, 10 out of 10. Realism, Rallycross, five out of 10 again. V-Rally, 10 out of 10, not surprising when you consider what the review was saying about the simulation. Graphics and sound, this is an interesting one because Rallycross gets 7 out of 10, but V-Rally gets 10 out of 10, which is odd given what was said about the sound. And I'm guessing it's a case of the graphics are so much better that it actually makes it superior. And in the block of text, it does say Rallycross wins the sound battle hands down because the engine noises are better and there's no dreadful soundtrack. So... It is a case of the graphics are that much better on V-Rally. It compensates for the shit audio. Uh, There are a couple where Rallycross actually wins. Difficulty curve, it gets 10 out of 10. V-Rally, 8 out of 10. And in the review, they said it's quite difficult to get started. Handling, Rallycross gets 10 out of 10. V-Rally gets 8 out of 10. Damage, Rallycross, 10 out of 10 for showing the damage on the cars. V-Rally, 8 out of 10. Speed, we're back in the realms of V-Rally. 10 out of 10 versus 7 out of 10 for Rallycross. Tracks, they both get 10. That's just mm-hmm. a, a dead yeah. heat for the sheer amount of variety. And and tolerance, which reading the paragraph seems to indicate things like clipping and oversteer and how tolerant the game is of you making minor errors. Rallycross gets 10 out of 10. V-Rally gets 8 out of 10. And I would expect that if V-Rally was more of a simulation because if you're a real rally driver and you make a minor mistake, you might be going arse over tea kettle and becoming the next Richard Hammond. So overall, Rallycross in this comparison gets 8 out of 10 and V-Rally gets 10 out of 10. And they remind you that Rallycross got 79 and V-Rally got 90. I don't know if we'll see more of these, but I wish we'd seen more of them historically. I really like this idea of going, OK, we've told you what the graphics are like, the sounds like, the gameplay, the last ability is like, but let's break it down. Which is a better multiplayer game? Which is better for realism? 
It's a really, really neat way of doing it, and I appreciate that they did it here. Particularly because while they are both on the same topic of rally racing, they are trying to achieve different things, I guess. One is a simulation, the other one is far more cartoony. So it's quite nice then to have the comparison to be like, yeah, that's one thing. They are under the same bubble. Let's just look at it with the bare basics of things, which is the better game to play. I think that's a really interesting idea. Which brings us to the 12th of July, the US fantasy series Xena Warrior Princess makes its UK debut on Channel 5. It's not surprising. You picked the wrong woman to get rough with. Saturday, 12th of July. Is that like your breasts aren't dangerous enough? She will pick your foot. Reinforce your pants. Xena Warrior Princess is coming to five. It is just too beautiful. This was my introduction to the show. I was able to get Channel 5 in my room and I did watch Xena Warrior Princess. Also watched Hercules when it eventually started airing as well. And But I was way more into Xena than I was um, Hercules. Bearing, bearing in mind as well that you know, I am a, uh, a 12-year-old boy at this point. So, For the benefit of those only listening, my eyebrow did almost collide with the ceiling. Yeah, absolutely. It it does feel a lot like, mm, yeah, that's probably why I enjoyed the show quite a bit. And I, and I probably was not alone in all of that either, because I do think this is the show that started my love affair with Lucy Lawless, which continued to when she appeared in Parks and Recreation. And I was enjoying Parks and Recreation otherwise, but then she showed up, I was like, oh, this show just got 20 times better. She's great in the Evil Dead series as well. Do you know what? When the Evil Dead show came out, I was like, yeah, cool, I'll give this a go. I like Bruce Campbell. I like the Evil Dead series. Lucy Lawless is in it. Well, I'm definitely going to tune in now. Got to show out to show support for Lawless. I even had the um, the Xena Warrior Princess game on the PlayStation, which was quite dog-ass, but... I played the heck ends out of it nonetheless. And also, let's be honest, looking back at it now, there were two series there. There was Hercules, and then there was Xena. And one of those, the star has aged quite gracefully. And the other is Kevin Sorbo. Yeah, Kevin, what a knob. We tend to avoid getting political on this podcast, but what a prize bellend. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. It exposed himself to be the prize plan that he is. Lucy Lawless, however, top quality person. She is. A plus, 10 out of 10. She's the V-Rally to his rally cross. <laughs> oh. On the 19th, we had Oasis releasing, do you know what I mean? While the following day, the Lost World Jurassic Park tops the UK box office. Daddy, I found something! A British family on a yacht cruise stumbled upon Site B. And now it's only a matter of time before this Lost World is found and pillaged. Hopefully we've kept this island quarantined and contained, but I'm in shock about all this. Wow. Ooh, ah, that's how it always starts. But then later there's running and, and 
screaming. A movie that only exists because the first one did good. The first one did so good that Steven Spielberg said to Michael Crichton, can you write another book so I can make another movie? So Michael Crichton wrote another book. Then Steven Spielberg said, yeah, I'm not going to base it on that, but I will take the title. I mean, technically, the question is, can you write another book? To which the answer apparently was no. <laughs> not really. I, he, he certainly farted that book out. Here's the thing with Michael Crichton. Jurassic Park is a banger of a book made into a banger of a movie that, much like Jaws, is quite a sanitised version of the book. Also like Spielberg, no one will ever make a direct adaptation of Jurassic Park, just like, sadly, no one will make a direct adaptation of Jaws. Mm. I love Congo, which is also a Michael Crichton gig, but I don't love it because it's good. I love it because it's kind of <coughs> pit-ass and it's got Ernie Hudson in it. It's not a great movie, is Congo. I remember reading The Lost World uh, a couple of years after, so I saw the movie first for sure. I, my parents wouldn't have let me read the book when I was you know, 11, 12 years old, so I'm, I would have read it much later. My dad did, though. I remember going the weekend that the book came out, going into town and buying it for my dad. And my dad being like, yeah, it's not particularly great. It's certainly not as good as Jurassic Park. It's, my dad loved Jurassic Park, and I do as well, because I think Jurassic Park's an amazing book. And it's one of those things where it's like um, somehow Ian Malcolm came back and it's that thing of somehow Ian Malcolm has returned. They were just like, well, he was the popular character from the movie, so we need to have him in the second book, even though you killed him off in the first book. Can you just say, turns out he survived, actually. He went to see Miracle Max, for those of you that have seen The Princess Bride. He went to see Miracle Max and Miracle Max went, no, he's only mostly dead. And then he did the whole thing where he breathed air into him with the bellows and pushed him down to find out what he had worth living for. And the answer was sequel rights. And so he's just like, well, that's the best thing ever, apart from a nice MLT, mutton, lettuce and tomato. So off we go. But I wanted to, before we recorded this, I wanted to watch the latest Jurassic World film. Oh, Dominion. Yeah. I still haven't quite brought myself to do it because part of me wants to see the band back together but i know it's gonna be more like embarrassing than a recent rolling stones concert yeah i i've, I've got a similar feeling towards it as well like i, I i've sort of made my feelings known a little bit on nostalgia as of late and you know like they announced the other day they're doing a requel to i know what you did last summer with jennifer love hewitt and freddie prince jr and i'm like I feel this is getting out of hand now. Uh, yeah, Ash is currently to the camera holding up one of the little mini Stay Puffed uh, creatures from Ghostbusters Afterlife, a movie that I did love. I didn't like those bits. With The Lost Worlds, I, well, I we went to go see this, probably not opening weekend, but you know maybe a, a couple of weekends after, but I remember being so excited to see it because I was Jurassic Park mad in 1993. So to get to see another one, I'm quids in, absolutely. I would love to go see another one. And I remember really enjoying it. And that's because it had dinosaurs in it and the dinosaurs did some dinosaur stuff i look back at the film now and i love the concept of site b i think the scene with the trailers on the clifftops very good and the raptors in the long grass is very good but there's also quite a lot of cack in the movie it's it, it's it's more cack than it is good the raptors in the long grass is the best jaws thing that spielberg has been involved with since jaws because the way they do the raptors in the grass, particularly a couple of the shots, it's like, that's definitely a Jaws reference. Yeah, Deliberately absolutely. or otherwise, 
Like that's a fin cutting through the water, the tip of that tail. So good. So it's a brilliant little sequence, but it's not a brilliant little movie. And I feel like that is the story of Jurassic Park as a franchise. The first movie's good, then it's two sequels that come after a sort of diminishing returns. But the thing that always struck me about it was the third act of the movie, set in San Francisco, where they take a T-Rex and they put it in you know, put it into a suburban setting. And it's not all great. Like it's not really that good. And apparently the only reason it was done is because sony were going to do a godzilla movie and the reason that you know sony were pushing ahead with their godzilla movie is because jurassic park had been big so they were like well we'll just do the jurassic park in the suburban setting first and tack that ending on in the writing process and i don't and it just like sort of comes out of left field and it's very unsatisfactory as an ending and there's a whole bunch of questions about how the ship became a ghost ship. Was there deleted sequences involving raptors being on the boat as well? Was it meant to be the baby T-Rex, which wouldn't actually make that much sense? It was It was proper half-assed. It was as tacked on and half-assed as the post credit sequence on Moonfall. It's why I still prefer Jurassic Park 3. My, my ranking of the Jurassic Park movies, not Jurassic World, we'll leave those separate, is Jurassic Park 1, Jurassic Park 3, Jurassic Park 2. I don't know where I stand on that because I think there's part of me that thinks you are right. Uh, but I, I, I don't like the Spinosaurus in Jurassic Park 3. This whole sort of like thing of like, well, we've done the T-Rex, we need a new villain, even though you've kind of had the better villain already there. And I think its ending is absolute tosh. I think the ending to three is worse than the ending to two. But it actually does kind of make sense, at least. It doesn't, there are no unresolved questions, really. It does just, it ends, and that's it. And that's yeah. the end of the movie. But the, the there is a natural progression in the story. Yeah, I think it's more my case of he talks to the raptors. And the raptors are like, yeah, all right, mate, we won't attack you then. I think it's like if you meow at a cat. What he actually did when he was talking to the raptors was he was going, have you seen the date? Have you filed your tax returns? And the raptors are like, shit, we're self-employed contractors. We gotta go, lads. Turns out I'm not a clever girl. I've, I've got to get. I've got to get me expenses done. I mean, I really enjoyed the movie when I saw it. Maybe you know, I, I've got a different opinion on it now. But I was mad into it, and I got a load of Lost Worlds. In fact, actually, when I went to big school, summer of 1997, or you know, the new term of 1997, I went into that term with all new Jurassic Park like pencil cases, pencils, pens, and all that going good jazz. I was mad into it. And I, you know, and I, I got it on VHS and I watched the heckins out of it because it was dinosaurs doing dinosaur things. To be honest, that's all I kind of want out of a Jurassic Park movie. And, and Jurassic Park building. does that. And Jurassic Park 2 does that. And Jurassic Park 3 does that. Yeah. Jurassic World did have dinosaurs doing dinosaur stuff. I'll give them that. I actually thought the idea of trying to train raptors because they were so intelligent was actually a bit cool. I was fine with that. Then we got into the next Jurassic World, and I was like, ugh. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom really feels like a filmmaker who was like, I don't like dinosaurs anymore. Can we just create clone monsters and we'll just do... We're making a dinosaur movie, but I think dinosaurs are boring. They've got feathers now. That's not cool. Yeah, but anyway, that was The Lost World Jurassic Park. However, if you were tuning into TV just five days later, we had the network premiere of Clive Barker's 1987 horror movie, Hellraiser on Channel 4. Oh my god. From the mind of Clive Barker. Tales of 
indeed. Clive Barker's Hellraiser, based on the novella The Hellbound Heart, and this was essentially the result of Clive Barker being a bit hacked off at previous attempts to adapt his work and going, hey, hold my pint and give me $900,000. I'm going to make my own film. And whilst it is a miserable film, as indeed are pretty much all of the Hellraiser movies, it's a very, very well-made movie. And also, this network premiere would have been when I saw Hellraiser. These late-night premieres on Channel 4, on BBC2, that was when I saw a lot of these movies. It's when I saw this, it's when I saw Dawn of the Dead. So as a young horror fiend, ah, you know, this was just my bread and butter by this point. I really, really like Hellraiser, the first film. It's not a film I'll watch often because it is a miserable film, but I watch it and I appreciate what Clive Barker did. I appreciate what the film is. I think the cast is spectacular in it. Doug Bradley just creating an iconic role. Yeah, I think there are some moments of joy in the Hellraiser series. I think Hell on Earth actually has some good giggles in it, particularly the music video where Lemmy is playing poker with Pinhead. Always hold that up. Yeah, stunning film. So glad I got to see it at this point. Absolutely love and appreciate it. And also worth noting is that it got its public premiere, its first showing at a venue, I think, near and dear to both of our hearts, the Prince Charles Cinema just off Leicester Square. Oh, one of my favourite places on this entire planet. Um, right, other things we've got this month on the 26th, we've got a re-entry at the top of the pops with Puff Daddy's I'll Be Missing You and our last news item on the 29th, The Verve release Urban Hymns, but in a controversial legal dispute, the majority of the royalties and songwriting credits for the single Bittersweet Symphony go to the Rolling Stones. Uh, this is quite a murky one, so we, don't, we won't spend too much time on this, but essentially a former manager of the Rolling Stones who had the copyright on the pre-70s songs, or including their pre-70s songs, um, including Last Time, which is the sample used in uh, Bittersweet Symphony, decided, that's more than I thought you were going to use. I want all the royalties now. Jagger had no interest, neither did Keith Richards. They had no interest in this. They said, this has nothing to do with us. It was the manager, the ex-manager of the Rolling Stones who decided that he wanted all the cuts. The song is written and credited now to Jagger and Richards and all the royalties go to him. In fact, now it's it was even used in a Nike advert a couple of years after uh, it came out, which the Verve would not have signed off on, but they have no legal claim to it. I can kind of see, like, put it this way, without that hook, that song would be nothing. So I'm not surprised the court... Yeah, it's a really nice song, but it's it's Vanilla Rice and Queen. It is, no, 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 I think we need to side with this person over here. Despite how good the song is, we are siding with this person over here. blood pressure Xena warrior princess on five all over the country new car phone warehouse doors are springing up car phone warehouse how can I help what's in it for you we actually make it clear how much it's going to cost you a month we're totally independent we won't push you any particular network now net Vodafone 129 and we won't push you any particular phone there is a perfect mobile phone out there for you it'll be the phone that suits you because a we know what we're talking about and b we're totally impartial 
all the networks, all the answers at the Carphone Warehouse. Call this number for your local store. I'm totally impartial and that, that's really important to me. Now it's only a matter of time before this lost world is found. They're still alive. Discover the wonder. Wow. Mm. Isn't it great? Experience the adventure. I'm not making the same mistakes again. You're making all new ones. As Universal Pictures takes you to a world you've never seen before. A Steven Spielberg film. The Lost World. 
Ash, what's going on in the magazines? Oh, mate, it is a bumper double-page spread that opens up Games Network and Games Master magazine. Let's start with the big news. Super Mario 64 2. Nintendo promises two-player frenzy for the 64 DD. So we are not going to get this version of Mario 64 until we get Mario 64 DS, when it's got the multiplayer version on that. The article says any doubts about Nintendo's intention to really push their N64 DD add-on have been banished with the shock announcement that Super Mario 64 2, which would make it Super Mario 128, will appear on the DD in the middle of next year. Details are still vague, but Shigeru Miyamoto and his team are planning to add Mario's brother Luigi to the game. In some of the previous Mario outings, you could be either character with players taking it in turns to battle their way through the levels. However, Nintendo are trying to make the game a simultaneous two-player affair via some kind of split-screen mode. If they pull this off and keep that legendary Mario playability intact, they will have yet another best game in the universe hit on their hands. Luigi was supposed to be included in the first Mario 64 game, but was left out due to time and memory constraints. You can bet your ass we'll bring you more news as we get it. So, yeah, the, the 64DD, uh, you and Cliff cover this a little bit on the, uh, the the Nintendo 64 launch episode that you did, which I, I remember the, all the magazines at the time talking about the DD and the excitement of the DD, and it, it doesn't really quite become the the big add-on for the 64 that we thought it might be. I think it's quite funny in that news item. It's just like, hey, if you thought the Nintendo weren't going to go full on with this DD thing, this is the news story to prove that you're wrong. The next article is a bit more legally. The headline is Nintendo price cuts soon. But what actually it focuses on is the EEC going after Nintendo for business practices. A recent EEC decision is likely to have a massive impact on the UK gaming scene as Nintendo have come under the microscope for the way they conduct their business. Their third-party licensing agreement that it uses to control the amount, quality and price of software has been deemed to be contrary to the EEC's competition laws and as a result, the Big N has been forced to make changes. The most significant change is that companies are no longer forced to go to Nintendo to get cartridges manufactured. This has long been the cause of higher prices for Nintendo games, but as a result of this decision, the manufacturing prices will be reduced, hence making it possible to make cheaper games. That's a bit of a clickbaity headline because realistically what it's saying is there could be cheaper prices if they went somewhere else and got someone else to make the cartridges. Spoilers, that doesn't f***ing happen. No, but it's nice to see that because this whole deal has been a war against Nintendo for years at this point. Throughout the 80s and like into the 90s, like the launch of the Super Nintendo and across the, the success of the NES, they companies were up in arms about Nintendo, but of course they had to do it because Nintendo was the company. It was the NES was the biggest thing in North America, and so and the Super Nintendo then went to its war with Sega. That you had to kind of bow down to Nintendo's laws. There were stories that used to be abound of there was a shop in uh, America that just because they wanted to offer up some alternatives to uh, to families, started selling another console on the same shelves. And they then suddenly discovered that they weren't getting any more Nintendo stock being sent to them. And when they called up to ask why this was like, oh, it's just it keeps falling off the back of lorries, so we can't get anything across to you anymore. And that company then went out of business because no one went to them to buy Nintendo stuff anymore. 
and they couldn't make any money off Nintendo stuff. Nintendo were a fucking ruthless business. And it's nice to see that their really shady practices are kind of being held accountable here. Yeah, and thankfully, I mean, that will obviously mean that by the time we reach present day here in 2023, Nintendo will be an entirely honest and honourable company, Luke. Thank God for the world that we live in. They are now just uh, unhonourable, but within the law this time. They're legally dishonourable. But at least they are still giving their uh, staff pay rises, despite the fact that they're not making as much money. So good on them for that. I mean, they're selling plenty of switches. That much we definitely know. It's interesting because that news article, like the headline, the headline makes it sound like, oh, your games are going to get cheaper or the console's going to become even cheaper. No, it's uh, at some point in the future, maybe. Or, as the article points out, the game makers may just keep their prices the same and make more profit, which, let's be honest, is more likely. I mean, as a case in point for that, Ash, you just held up the magazine there and I just saw what the cover was. And I just had this real like pang of nostalgia of, oh, I had that issue of Games Master. And I remembered Banjo-Kazooie and Sonic being on the front cover, which means I had this magazine and I don't really remember this bit. So I don't, I would have thought I probably didn't actually read that news item in the magazine. It, would, it wouldn't have been interesting to me at, at 11 years old. But Luke, if you had this magazine, do you remember it excitedly talking about the debut of a brand new handheld console? Is it by any chance the Gamecom? It is indeed the Gamecom with Duke Nukem, Sonic and more. Well, and you know what? It does have those games. Uh, Gamecom Sonic is notably shit. Gamecom's a brilliant little disaster. It's it's up there with the N-Gage in terms of handheld disasters. It has a slightly less anus look than the N-Gage, definitely. But this article says, you want to look smooth and almost professional, but you still hanker for those days of Game Boy fun. Are we right? I mean, always. Always hankering for those days of Game Boy fun, Luke. If you're looking for a discreet way of enjoying the pleasures of portable gaming while keeping your personal life in order, then we may have the answer for you. The latest bit of electronic wizardry to drop into our laps is the Gamecom from Tiger. See, there's the first alarm bell. That's going to say, that's your first big warning, right? It's it's done by the Tiger people, folks. Its built-in phone book, calendar and calculator are all well and good. But more importantly, it offers solitaire and two cartridge slots for additional games. So that's where Evercade got the idea from. And also, it's not two cartridge slots for extra games. It's you just get to put two carts in. That's not extra games. I mean, the idea is I suppose you could have two games inserted at once so you wouldn't need to take games in your pocket. But realistically, one of those cartridge slots was intended for the data module to allow internet access. It was a big part of the Gamecom selling point. But it does say, we've been puzzling over an American version of Wheel of Fortune that makes very little sense to our British brains, which is probably why they let Nicky Campbell host the UK TV version, and a frustrating little puzzler number called Lights Out. Other cartridges available for the Gamecom include Batman and Robin. Oh, yeah. Sonic Jam. Which is the Sonic the Hedgehog game, yeah. Duke Nukem 3D, Indy 500, and a host of classic games, i.e., cheap uh can confirm all of those did come out yeah which makes it better than some of the consoles we've talked about on this uh on this podcast that's four of four ash 
usually when we do these articles, it's usually three or two or four. Or, you know, or if the Atari Jaguar is involved, none. Exactly. There are some of those classic games as well. There were Frogger and Centipede. Uh, Monopoly, Jeopardy, that sort of thing were released on the Gamecom. But they go on to mention that internet cartridge. They say by buying an add-on internet cartridge, the console can also be connected to a modem and be used to send and receive emails. It's controlled using a stylus-like pen that brings a wave of dewy-eyed nostalgia flooding over any... And I'm not going to read the rest of that sentence because it involves talking about someone that I think we've categorically agreed not to talk about on this podcast. Mm-hmm. We'll have more to tell you about the Gamecom after we've had a chance to really put it through its paces. Although early signs are that the battery life is not as good as our faithful long-serving Game Boys. I mean, nothing was as good as the battery life on a Game Boy. They had a proton pack level half-life. So if the idea of surfing the internet or blasting demons with the Duke on a stylophone lookalike appeals to you, don't miss next month's issue where we'll give you our final verdict. So we'll be coming back to that in a little while. I look forward to it as well. The the Resident Evil 2 port on the Gamecom is a technical marvel that's basically unplayable. I will always recommend the Stop Skeletons from Fighting video essay that they did on the Gamecom because it's a brilliant deep dive into all of the titles that you can get for it. The deadly... Go on. You know what it's like to get it right between the eyes? Ah! To see the juice squirt out of your family like the 4th of July? Oh. Ever hear a scream so loud? It scrambled your intestines and the burning light right before the fall. Only a pro could do this. Recognize them? Uh, that's the one! Gamecom Pocket Pro, the only portable cartridge system that plays Resident Evil 2. Speaking of that Resident Evil adaptation, uh, friends over at HG101, I've been on their podcast a couple of times, had a great time on there. They did a gag episode where they did a ranking of Resident Evil 2. And all the way through, they were talking about the Gamecom release, including talking about the graphics being shitty, you only can play as one character, all this stuff. And so many people did not pick up on the fact that they were talking about the Gamecom version. They got hate mail, essentially, of people just going, how can you rank Resident Evil 2 so low? What are you on about? Did you not think to play with the second disc? There's multiple characters. You don't know gaming. And it's like, no, mate, you don't know gaming if you don't realise they're talking about the Gamecom version. I was going to say, the problem there is that if you don't hear the follow-up episode to explain that, then you're just going to assume that they're wrong the entire time. I think they may have revealed it at the end of the episode, but people had actually like switched off in rage. That I can buy. The amount of times I get tweets from people... Uh, explaining something that I misunderstood on a podcast, even though on that same podcast episode I released from, you know, my day job, I then say, oh, it's about this. And then they'll get tweets from them. And then five minutes later, I'll click that tweet. And it's like, this tweet has been deleted because they have realized that I worked out. In, in some cases, that actually happened to me last week where I said, I wonder what that's a reference to. 45 seconds later, I said, oh, it's a reference to this. And I got a tweet from someone being like, you're an idiot. It's clearly a reference to this. And then that tweet was deleted very, very shortly thereafter. Yeah, sorry, man. I shouldn't have sent the tweet in the first place. <laughs> anyway, we've got some other news items in August. On the 1st, the US animated series King of the Hill makes its UK debut on Channel 4. Hank has a problem. All I'm saying is keep the government out of the bedroom business. See, Bobby is growing up. Yeah. And somebody's got to teach him. Well, you know. Oh, my. How am I going to say these words out loud? What? Happiness. Happiness. 
King of the Hill, Friday at 10.30 on 4. A show I absolutely love. And speaking of things I love, movie releases on the third Men in Black tops the UK box office. Such a good movie. Lindsay Ellis described it uh, as this, and I completely agree. It's the perfect summer blockbuster comedy movie. Like, it's probably the most perfect one since Ghostbusters. Also often neglected as a truly great comic book adaptation. Absolutely, yeah. It is. does wander away from the source material quite a bit, but it's still technically a successful, critically acclaimed comic book adaptation. We've had two of those in this whole year. We've had that and uh, Batman and Robin. Like, it's... Moving on. (laughs) I love Men in Black. It's a brilliant movie. Uh, Oh, so good. And great music, great theme song. It really is. Not just, like, the Will Smith, like, you know, single and that, but, like, I think the score as well is genius. I've got... Man, the amount of times I watched this on VHS. I remember going down to Plaza Video and renting this movie and just being obsessed with it. What a villainous performance from D'Onofrio oh god yeah sugar and water yeah I it's second best villainous performance next to the kingpin yeah it really is because everyone always goes to you know Will Smith or Tommy Lee Jones or maybe even Linda Fiorentino not enough love is given to to Vincent D'Onofrio in that movie Uh, but anyway on the ninth we got a new game at the top of the video game charts for that one week where V-Rally was not and it's Dungeon Keeper the most computer game of the decade. Oh, Dungeon Keeper Rumble Frog. Out now on PCCD. Yes, a Peter Molyneux game that mostly delivers on its promises. I bloody love Dungeon Keeper. I thought it was a great game. Apparently Molyneux came up with the idea for it in a traffic jam. Did he really? He was so engrossed in the idea, he failed to notice that the traffic had started moving around him. Which is the most believable Molyneux quote I think I could have ever, you know, heard. It's just like, yeah, that that sounds like it checks out. I have not played Dungeon Keeper, but a friend of mine was hugely into Dungeon Keeper 2. I, weirdly, I don't know if I played Dungeon Keeper 2. I think I sunk all my time into the first one. This game does actually hold a very important kind of like note in UCP and Games Master history, because this is the game that Molyneux was working on in 1995 when EA said he had to ship Dungeon Keeper in six and a half weeks, and he basically gave them a placebo game, which was High Octane, which, if you remember, we discussed as being an absolute bobbins game. Yes, I do recall. It was a very critically acclaimed game. It sold good amounts. I mean, it made the top of the charts here, but it was the final game that Peter Molyneux made with Bullfrog. When this game was done, so was he. He left in July of 1997. He went on to form Lionhead Studios, and he stated that he wanted to make the coolest game ever. Still waiting. (laughs) He'll get there eventually. But I do like Dungeon Keeper. It was a great game and also it sounded great. It used some really, really nifty sound font technology, which is normally associated with MIDI and Creative Lab sound cards and music creation to just give it this incredibly atmospheric, but also very um, uh, flexible environment. Seeing this come up on this timeline and then reading up a bit on it made me go, I really want to give Dungeon Keeper another blast again. On the 16th, Will Smith was top of the pops with Men in Black. And now we're going to jump ahead to the 31st. Ugh. Yeah, here it is, folks. The death of Diana, Princess of Wales. The reports are that Diana has been killed, dirty fired, also died, as did the driver of the car. 
For the very latest monitoring all the uh, incoming wires into ITN, Tim Wilcox is in our newsroom. Let's go to him now. Well, yes, Dermot, the Press Association uh, announced with a news flash at 4.41, that's just a few minutes ago, that Diana, Princess of Wales, has died, according to British sources, uh, the Press Association learned this morning. That was followed a few minutes later by um, another report saying that Paris, Princess Diana, dead, according to an unnamed French minister. Uh, that was followed again a couple of minutes later by a doctor, again an unnamed doctor, confirming that Princess Diana was dead. I have got very, very vivid memories of this day. Yep, same here. Because I woke up at about 5.30am, maybe 6, to go fishing. And I put the TV on while I was just kind of like having some breakfast and getting ready to head out. And I'm just like, oh, there's news all over the place. And of course, that's when I found out that Princess Diana was dead. And so I distinctly remember waking up my parents because I was still living at home at the time and going, uh, Princess Diana's dead. And I think my mum's reaction was, that's not very funny. And I'm like, I'm not laughing, I guess. It, it, it's on the news. And I'll be honest, I finished my breakfast and I went fishing because, like, you know, don't get me wrong. I thought the way she died was absolutely tragic. It was a terrible, terrible thing to happen that could have been avoided and it wasn't. But also, like, what, what was I going to do? Sit and watch the TV all day? I don't know. It's so weird that I still remember being on the riverbank and people, because people were out dog walking and stuff like that and other fishermen, and almost everyone, the first thing they'd say would be like, did you hear Princess Diana's died? And I'm like, yeah, I probably found out before some of you. I, funnily enough, would have been up roughly the same time you were as well. I remember this morning very, very clearly. Uh, but I was not. I was not up to uh, go fishing. I was up to watch cartoons. Good luck with that. Well, that's it. I'd woken up at sort of about half five-ish. I put on Channel Four to watch cartoons, and there were no cartoons to be found. I thought, oh, okay. I'm I'm obviously up really early, and the cartoons haven't started yet. And so I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and still no cartoons were there to be found. My parents found out. Uh, that Princess Diana died through me, similarly uh, to, to your uh, parents as well, because I went in to wake up my mum to be like, there's no cartoons on because they're talking about something else. I didn't really fully comprehend what it was. I'm 11 years old. I, I was aware of who Diana was. She was a pop culture thing. They've been referenced on shows, but I was not really fully cognizant of what was actually happening here and how like monumental of a moment this was. And how monumental a moment it would be for British press, which is, you know, still held up to this day, sort of, you know, demonized for it over this day, quite rightly so, I would argue. And the impact that this would have on the royal family for the next, you know, nearly 30 years. I just, I wasn't getting my cartoon. So I went and woke my parents up to ask why the cartoons weren't on. And I would imagine my parents then spent the rest of the day watching the news. Because, you know, that's kind of what's written about here, which is that at 6am, Rolling News program just started airing. And across all stations, BBC One, BBC Two, just had Rolling News about this. Same thing happened when the Queen died last year, was just 
everything gets dropped and it's just wall-to-wall news with nothing but rolling coverage of what is happening here. All changes on BBC One. Further news in a moment, then at 6.30 we go live to St Paul's Cathedral with church leaders of many denominations for a special service to bring the nation together. And at 8 o'clock a tribute to Diana, Princess of Wales, from David Dimbleby. Changes also on BBC Two at 6.45, Country File, and following that at ten past seven, a picture of a year in the British countryside. Michael Palin begins his new series at eight o'clock, a journey around the Pacific Rim, 50,000 miles and 18 countries in a full circle. Tonight's episode of Full Circle will also be shown again next Sunday evening here on BBC One. In another new series at 8.50, Professor Stephen Hawking's far-reaching view of the universe. The Natural World is at 9.40 and Canterbury is at half past ten. It's the first of two Everyman programmes celebrating the Cathedral's 1400th anniversary. And after that, the film Ring of Bright Water, the revised line-up for BBC Two. ITV's unbroken news coverage of the tragedy lasts until well into the evening, with the first scheduled programming being Coronation Street. In the days following her death, regular programming is abandoned in order to allow for coverage of the events. It was just, it was everywhere. I mean, BBC Two technically started broadcasting alternative programming to, you know, the grief news uh, about 3pm. But that's because obviously the BBC had two channels at the time. So it could go, we're still doing respectful news programming on BBC One, but BBC Two, we can probably put reruns of, I don't know, Last of the Summer Wine. It was probably something as inoffensive as possible. So yeah, Last of the Summer Wine. Only Fools and Horses, Dad's Army. Yeah, yeah, something along those lines. ITV, they just had to keep rolling. Interestingly, no mention on these notes of Channel 4. I can tell you they had the news on first thing in the morning. I don't know how long it would have lasted until though. Like, you yeah. know, whether or not like regular programming would have pres- like resumed about 3pm or maybe even midday. But yeah, you're right, probably would have been like motocross or something like that. And Channel 5, Confessions of a Window Cleaner. <laughs> Followed by Xena Warrior Princess. But yeah, no, I've got the very, very vivid memories of this. And kind of like, as we alluded to, it's going to roll over into September because on the 5th, Queen Elizabeth II addresses the nation with a special broadcast in which she pays tribute to Diana, Princess of Wales, only the second time she has done so. Since last Sunday's dreadful news, we have seen throughout Britain and around the world an overwhelming expression of sadness at Diana's death. We have all been trying in our different ways to cope. It is not easy to express a sense of loss, since the initial shock is often succeeded by a mixture of other feelings, disbelief, incomprehension, anger, and concern for those who remain. We have all felt those emotions in these last few days. So what I say to you now, as your queen and as a grandmother, I say from my heart. First, I want to pay tribute to Diana myself. She was an exceptional and gifted human being. In good times and bad, she never lost her capacity to smile and laugh, nor to inspire others with her warmth and kindness. I admired and respected her for her energy and commitment to others, and especially for her devotion to her two boys. This week at Balmoral, we have all been trying to help William and Harry come to terms with the devastating loss that they and the rest of us have suffered. The address is broadcast live at 6pm ahead of early evening news broadcasts, and then the day after, the live broadcast of the funeral, Diana Princess of Wales, is watched by 25 
billion viewers worldwide. Throughout London, all flags except this royal standard at Buckingham Palace are at half-mast. The royal standard showing where the Queen is in residence remains at the top of the mast. But at the Palace of Westminster here, in the morning sunshine, and at Westminster Abbey. The west door where, in two hours' time, the small cortege that will carry the body of the princess for the funeral service will arrive. The entrance to the door surrounded by flowers. The whole of London has spent the night in a vigil, people ten deep now on the streets, people with candles, people with cards, people with flowers, waiting for this moment. And the mood in London seems to now be becoming more sober, more somber. A night, after all, of, in some senses, a kind of camaraderie of people who felt that they should come here to mourn the princess. But now, as the moment when the funeral procession begins, approaches, people are calming down, moving to the positions from which they hope to be able to see the events. All over London, people have been pouring in to the vantage points right the way along the route that had to be specially extended. All of them come to celebrate the moment when the body of a 36-year-old princess who struck a deep chord in the public heart passes them with its bearer party, the coffin, and their thoughts perhaps turn away from their own feelings of grief to the fact that this was, and it should not be forgotten today, the mother of two young children, one of whom will be king. Ceremony's footage goes down in the Guinness World Records as the biggest TV audience for a live broadcast. In the UK, 32.10 million viewers watched the broadcast. It is the UK's second most watched broadcast of all time behind the 1966 World Cup final which is a staggering indictment of the UK. My nan was a bit of a royalist, and I feel like my mum wanted to be with family for the funerals. And I, I just remember driving up to my nan's, you know, probably would have driven, driven up on the 5th um, and then stayed there on the 6th. And I remember my mum telling me off at one point because me and my cousins just went upstairs to play, but we were being too loud and we were being too kid-like. And I think my mum wanted this to be a much more of a respectful day. I don't think we gave her that, you know, uh, so that, you know, shame on me. But uh, I also was 11 years old. I remember it very, very vividly. I remember being in my nan's spare room playing with my cousins and my mum telling me off because I was playing in my nan's spare room and I wasn't downstairs watching the funeral with everyone else. I can remember where I was. Obviously, you know, when the news broke about her dying and when there was the rolling news coverage, because, yeah, I went fishing. I couldn't tell you what I did on the day of the funeral. I'm sure I would have seen some of it. It would have been on in our household. But other than that, I genuinely cannot tell you. If I was in the room, I don't think I would have been actively watching it. I may have even been looking at the TV, but I don't think I would have been fully focused on it. I might have been there because it was 
the right thing to do, Bucky O'Hare yeah, is. But absolutely, I think I would have had the similar thing with the Queen's funeral last year. Like I was, I was in the room. I was at my in-laws, and they had it on. I was in the room, but I was also, you know, being about doing some parenting stuff. But I don't think I was actively watching. I did watch the Queen's funeral. I didn't think I was going to, but I did. And it was more a case of, appropriately, I think I watched it partly out of morbid curiosity and also because realising that chances are in my lifetime there will only be two occasions to see this because, because Christ, I hope I outlive Charles. But yeah, I, I definitely did deliberately end up watching the Queen's funeral. I actually spent a lot of time when I was watching the Queen's funeral trying to like work out where they'd hidden all the cameras because they were very careful about not showing where the cameras were and they did a beautiful job of filming it without it making obvious they were filming it. And I have to commend every single production designer, techie, director, producer, grip for the work they did. They did a phenomenal job of not being an overly intrusive uh, set of TV cameras. It was a weird thing to watch, but I did watch it half with a technical eye of going, how exactly do you film a modern royal funeral in 2022? Uh, in some slightly lighter news, the day after uh, the funeral <laughs> took place, the full Monty topped the UK box office. We're finished, Dave. Extincto. Yesterday's news. Shut it. Some of us are trying to get a job. Hey, and it says no smoking. You forget, Gerald, you're not our foreman anymore. You're just like the rest of us. Scrap. If you were out of work... Get a job. If you want joint custody, then you have to pay your share. And out of luck. Now what? Sure up, I'm thinking. You'd do anything... You call them Chippendales, man. ...to turn your life around. How many lasses were there, though? Thousands. It's worth a thought, though, isn't it? But these men... I don't see why not, Gerald. Because you're fat and he's thin and you're both ugly. ...have come up with a plan... No, not doing it. Come on, Dave, don't stop now. ...that's going to get them a lot of exposure. A laughing stock, totally. We can either forget it or do it and just maybe get rich. This is crazy. They may not have the talent for it. Dancers have coordination, fitness and grace. The bodies for it. The less I eat, the fatter I get. So stuff yourself and get thin. Or the stomach for it. I think I'm gonna be sick. But when you've got nothing to lose... Ruff. This lot go all the way. You lot. You've got nothing to hide. That would be worth a look. We've sold 200 tickets. No one said anything to me about the full Monty. Are you in or are you out? Never mind a dead princess. Here's some men getting their dicks out. It's a very British reaction to this, I suppose, for The Full Monty to be the UK box office number one. I love this movie. I think this movie is a... It's a wonderful little movie. And I think the performances are great. I think the script is great. It's very funny. It's very heartwarming. I studied it, in fact, at my... um, AS-level media studies, I think? Yes, it would have been, because my main A-level was um, slasher horror, so my AS-level was Full Monty. And the way that that's filmed and the way that it's staged and, and the way that it's written and how it represents uh, the, the north of England in the in the mid-90s. I remember my my English teacher, my, my media studies teacher, sort of holding it up and being like, this is one of the most successful UK movies of all time, and the UK didn't make penny one out of it because it's an American movie. And he's absolutely right, because it's a it's a fox it's a fox movie. It's a fox searchlight film. It is a UK movie in that it is set in the UK, but it is an American movie because it's an American studio. Just with all the tax breaks and benefits of the UK. Exactly, yeah. But it is an amazing, amazing movie. My favorite bit of trivia of it though is that 
the final shot of the movie, which is them, you know, turning around, swinging their hats into the air and revealing their knackers to all of the, uh, the, the women in the audience, well, actually, and the women and men that were in the audience for it as well. It's one shot. They just did it as one take. And they were like, all of them grouped together. and was like, we'll do this the once, right? We're not doing a second take of this. We're just going to do this the one time. And unfortunately, on that one shot, and it's, you can see it's because it's the final freeze frame, there's a massive lens flare on Tom Wilkinson's asshole. For whatever reason, the way that they lost it, they lit it, his ass has just got this huge lens flare on it. And the whole was like, oh, that's all we got. We can't do it again. That has to be the shot that we use to end this. I mean, lens flare on an asshole, the J.J. Abrams biopic. I'm pretty sure, actually, that is just what Rise of Skywalker was. <laughs> on the 12th, Ash, we got the release in the US, at the very least, of the Gamecom. And you teased us earlier that Games Master Magazine had a hands-on test of it. Indeed they do, and they've got it here. They say they're hands-on with the Gamecom. Tiger unleash their Game Boy beta. Hear it roar. And does it? Well, with a digitized American voice and a whoosh of monochrome graphics, Tiger Electronics' bid for portable gaming supremacy burst into life. Gamecom active. Their shiny new toy is the first handheld console to be released for five years, and it's not messing about. Featuring internet link-ups, touchscreen technology, plus Sonic Duke Nukem and Mortal Kombat carts on the way, has Nintendo's Game Boy finally met its match? They go on to talk about how, you know, the Game Boy's a little long in the tooth. Can the Gamecom compare to Nintendo's dependable old survivor? And they say, well, it's got more advanced technology in it. The mono unlit display is slightly larger. <laughs> slightly larger. <laughs> slightly larger. Than its main competitor with a clear, crisp resolution. But touching the display does more than leave sticky finger marks. Unclip the stylus and you can use it to navigate your way through menus and select options thanks to the same sort of touchscreen technology used in those funky digital organisers like the Apple Newton. The Apple Newton was indeed very funky. There's a standard D-pad and four-button combo for games as well as an all-important contrast and volume control. It all fits nicely into the hand and although bulkier than the Game Boy, it could, at a push, be shoehorned into the pocket of your canvas action slacks. That's a great expression. I really like, I that. like that. So far, so stylish. Each Gamecom comes with a built-in phone book, calendar, calculator, calendar and calculator to organise your hectic social calendar, but naturally, it's battery-powered games joy that we're most interested in. Selectable with a prod of the screen from the startup is Solitaire, the card-shuffling game of patience more traditionally played on a rainy caravanning holiday in Wales. I've been in the mood for Solitaire recently because um, Dominic's old purple column had um, a news piece about a competitive Solitaire game that you can play on your phone that he thinks is like game of the year. Competitive Solitaire really sounds like an oxymoron. Yeah, I, I think it's like it's Solitaire, but you're racing against the clock in order to do it. So it's like speed running on. Solitaire. Yeah, it's, it's basically speed running Solitaire. Yeah, Dominic Diamond described it as like game of the year, and it's actually generally tempted by it. I mean, they do say that this version of Solitaire is nicely done, but low on excitement. They go on to talk a little bit about the two cartridges provided with the machine for them, Lights Out and Wheel of Fortune. The first of these is being bundled with Gamecom and looks like Tiger's attempt to match Nintendo's still unbeatable Tetris. It's a simple puzzle em up where you use the stylus to turn a grid of blocks to the same colour. Although mildly diverting, it won't weld console to hand in the same way as Tetris and smells too much of puzzle books to be a killer app. Wheel of Fortune will be familiar to anyone who suffered the Nicky Campbell-fronted quiz while waiting for Corey to come on. So you probably... <laughs> yeah, me, absolutely. 
But unlike the pea-brained puzzles that feature on the box, this handheld version uses some bizarre American phrases for you to guess. Big Brothers of America, anyone? Still, Wheel of Fortune is quite a laugh and a good example of how Tiger are pitching their Gamecom as a fun for all the family, as well as the hardcore gaming fans. And they talk about the upcoming games, the ones that will be there for the hardcore gamers. They mentioned Duke Nukem again and Turok. They add Batman and Robin demo to them and were impressed with the graphics and the fairly traditional jumping and punching side-scroller. Duke Nukem did prove to be a bit of a disappointment, playing more like an old-style maze game than a battery-powered Doom clone. One thing that did surprise them about both the games was the sound. Rather than the bleepy-bleepy noises you'd expect, it has digitized speech, loud effects, and proper tunes coming from the mini speaker grill. They conclude by saying there's no doubting Gamecom's potential as a Game Boy beater. It's technically superior with touchscreen control, an ambitious lineup of games, and internet possibilities. Whether it can match the Game Boy's software range and playability is another matter. The Game Boy is a permanent fixture in the game's world because of its software rather than the state-of-the-art features. Gamecom's a good looker, but we'll need to see how the games shape up before paying £80 for this screen-fondling piece of kit. That's going to be the downfall of the Gamecom, really. It's... There was a couple of big titles that you mentioned in there, Duke Nukem, even though they said it's not very good. Sonic Jam, and you know, there's a Mortal Kombat game. The Mortal Kombat trilogy comes out on it. Fighters Mega Mix comes out in the Gamecom, right? They're just not very good games. It's fun, actually, because one of the games that was listed in that news item is a cancelled Gamecom game, that being Turok Dinosaur Hunter, but also cancelled for the Gamecom. Uh, includes, let's have a look at here, Command & Conquer Red Alert. That would never have worked. A Godzilla game, I'm going to presume based off the 98 movie. Metal Gear Solid, Sonic 3D Blast, a game based off Small Soldiers, uh, and the two that I think are interesting to certainly both you and I, Castlevania Symphony of the Night. There's a The ROM of that has recently been released online, so you can go and play it. It is remarkable in actually you know how close it is to the original game. And a WCW game. Ugh. <laughs> I, that wouldn't have been good, would it? Called WCW Whiplash is the, the game they were going to release. Yeah, because when I think wrestling, I think Whiplash. Yeah, that's what you're thinking, right? You I know, mean, getting whipped in, Irish whipped into the ropes. Oh, was it going to be a Whiplash there? I mean, only if you don't know how to run the ropes, which <laughs> did Dennis Rodman know how to run the ropes, really? He got through. He got through his two or three matches that he did perfectly fine, I guess. He did. I, I just could say another game they mentioned that I don't think ever appeared for the Gamecom is Virtua Fighter 3. No, they get Fighters Mega Mix instead. Yeah, they do detail. They show a couple of screenshots of Fighters Mega Mix. It looks about as bad as you'd expect, but they do say, allegedly, Virtua Fighter 3 is coming out. We'll believe it when we see it. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I mean, even on this list of cancel games I've got here, Virtua Fighter 3 is not listed. So either they were mistold or they just made it up. Flat out lied. Or it could be, I mean, like, Castlevania Symphony of the Night was a long-rumoured one. There were people who thought it was just a mistake that it was sort of, like, released because there were screenshots of it, but no actual, like, tangible proof that it ever existed. And then it turns out it did. So it could be, you never know, in a couple of years' time, all of a sudden there'll just be a ROM released of Virtua Fighter 3 for the Gamecom. Oh, won't that be exciting, Luke? <laughs> like I say, Stop Skeletons Revising will be there on the scene to play it. Some other news items from the month. Jurassic Park The Lost World on the PlayStation tops the video game charts, and I believe we have a review of that in Games Master Magazine. We do indeed, and I'll keep it simple. Graphics, 81. Sounds, 89. Gameplay, 47. Oof. 
Deary me. The flaws make this an average platform shooter combo. Should have been much better. Lifespan 70. Overall, hang in there and get past the flaws and bad level design and it's quite playable. Still a disappointing waste of a hit license though. 54%. I mean, I don't remember it being... I don't think I've ever played it, but I do remember at the time people saying it wasn't very good. But I'd imagine more people flocked to the record stands though because on the same day... Elton John's Candle in the Wind 97 tops the charts and will be there for quite some time, basically until the end of October. It will be at the, at the top of the charts for uh, old Diana, Princess of Wales. Notable for me because it's parodied in Parks and Rec. Lil Sebastian, the, the, the tiny horse, dies. Chris Pratt's character is tasked with writing a really good tribute song for Lil Sebastian. And he's given the task of it needs to be Candle in the Wind, but 5,000 times better. And so he writes a song called 5,000 Candles in the Wind. And this is with no disrespect to Diana or to Elton. Candle in the Wind, but 5,000 times better, is just the original version of Candle in the Wind, which was written about a completely different person. It was written about Marilyn Monroe, Nora Jean. And yeah, I mean, I am incredibly grateful that this fell in the mid-season break. Because, man, we would have been skirting the realms of completely tasteless by the end of it. Because, really, Elton John was very emotional over it. The nation was very emotional about the passing of Princess Diana. But, woof, that was a... I mean, that song lingered like a fart in a spacesuit. It just didn't go away. As a a nation, we were mourning this. But it's why people think the Full Monty did so well at the box office. Because people were looking for escape. They were looking for that light relief. You know, I, I, I use these words not wisely and certainly not, I don't mean this maliciously in any way. I'd imagine Fox were quite happy with it as well because they weren't going to release it theatrically. It was going to be a straight-to-video movie because they did not like the first cut of it. But yeah, we because Full Monty's number one at the box office for ages. It also kind of lingers. To, but I, the weird thing is, is like the Full Monty being at the top of the charts for that long, I can understand because people would see it for the first time, but people would also go back and see it. Yeah. How many people bought multiple copies of Candle in the Wind? Yeah, um, people who really, really liked it, I guess. Or got sick of it, threw it out and then felt guilty. So went and bought another copy. Uh, yeah, can confirm. I just went to go and check. The Full Monty was box office number one, September 7th, and is there until November 9th. Which means, Ash, we might have done in this mid-season break, had the Full Monty and Candle in the Wind as every single week. You know, like, is there anything else that we can talk about? We'd have probably just ended up doing a scene-by-scene breakdown of the Full Monty, or a line-by-line breakdown of Candle in the Wind 1997. I mean, Ash, technically... We might get a chance to do that because it is the box office number one when Games Master comes back on because it does return to the charts for another two weeks on November 16th. Oh, Jesus Christ. We get a face-off break and then it's full Monty for two more weeks. 
On the 19th, we got the debut of Ground Force on BBC Two, presented by Alan Titchmarsh, Charlie Dimmock, and Tommy Walsh, which was mostly famous, I think, because Charlie Dimmock didn't wear a bra, and so the newspapers thought that was news. Because apparently, Luke, I don't know if you knew this, but women have nipples. I believe they do, actually. I've heard rumours of it anyway. You heard rumours, and if you watch Ground Force, you could have empirical evidence. On the 20th, we have the debut of BBC's promotional movie featuring Lou Reed's 1972 song Perfect Day, performed by various artists, including David Bowie, Bono, Brett Anderson and Laurie's. Due to its popularity, the version is released as a single on the 17th of November with sales benefiting children in need. The song ultimately spends three weeks at the top of the UK singles charts and raises two million for children in need. By November 2016, it sold 1.54 million copies, despite not being available for download. Drink sangria in the park And then later when it gets dark We go home Just a perfect day Feed animals in the zoo Then later a movie too And then Yeah, only ever got a physical release on cassette and CD. Might have got a limited vinyl release as well. I don't actually know. I own this on cassette. I own this on CD. I bloody loved this version of Perfect Day. One of the reasons it's never been re-released is because of the weird um, uh, legalese involving it being made, being made for the BBC, publicly funded, yada, 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 licensing with Lou Reed. But, oh, I mean, the CD version came with three versions. They came with the radio edit, and then you got the all-male version and the all-female version, because obviously people didn't just turn up and record one line. They probably turned up and recorded most of the song, and then they cherry-picked each line, making it work. And then once they got the edit, they got those people back in to do their music video bits, like Boyzone being covered in tinfoil and fairy lights. Dr. John just looking like an absolute badass and going, perfect day. I was so happy when I saw this coming up in the timeline because I will still call this up on YouTube. It's an absolute banger of a cover and just shows so much different musical diversity from the past and the present and artists that were just becoming a big thing moving into the future. And yeah, it was done to promote music across the BBC platforms and it just took on a life of its own. And it is arguably one of the few times when a Children in Need charity single has actually been a good song. Uh, it's funny because when this came up in the timeline, I, was, I put this into the document. Funnily enough, it wasn't this version that jumped into my mind. It's the Harry Enfield parody that he does for his 97 Christmas special that jumped into my mind first, which is basically just it's Harry Enfield and Paul Whitehouse and everyone doing, and Kathy Burke, doing Perfect Day, but with the Harry Enfield and Chums characters. Just a perfect day. 
drink sangria in the park. <laughs> and then later, when it gets dark, we go First thing that came to my mind, I was like, I am right. It was the 97 Christmas special. And yeah, it was as well. Really quick going on getting that produced and turned around. That would have been a late, late contribution. But oh, yeah, I, I, I mean, put this way, there is every chance that when we're done talking on this podcast today, I'm going to go and listen to it again. Yeah, I was literally about to open up a tab with YouTube. Cipher in now so that when we're finished recording, I can watch this before I shut the PC down. It's weird how of all the various music videos, I can remember so many bits of that, like Ian Brody of the Lightning Seeds in there as well, Heather Smalls of M People and the, the choir there and, and then just Lou Reed in it for like two lines and appearing at the end going, shh. <laughs> Last couple of news items for the month, however, Abe's Odyssey tops the video game charts, but for just one week, as F197 replaces it. My friend uh, had Abe's Odyssey on his PlayStation, and we loved it, but I don't think I actually played it that far into the story. We just sort of replayed the first couple of sections over and over again. But let's quickly jump into October, and on the 3rd, the Virtual Globe Ident is seen for the final time on BBC One after six years in use, with the hot air balloon ident launching the following day on the sixth Aphex twin court controversy with their video for the single come to daddy come to daddy with the video being banned by tv networks for being quote too frightening and they're not wrong there because it's well scary it's still pretty freaky now because despite cgi being kind of like the flavor at the time because if you think we're on the heels of things like jurassic park but they'd already started to replace people's faces like the stunt people and digital whatnots they decided not to do it that way they went old school they went with prosthetic masks so you actually have the music video the music video has an old lady walking her dog uh she finds a discarded tv broadcasting this really weird distorted face that is actually richard james and immediately she's kind of like harassed and set upon by a gang of children each wearing a latex mask of Aphex Twin himself. And it it was genuinely a harrowing thing to watch. It was also a harrowing experience for the little old lady because she got blasted with wind machines. She was chased. It was cold. It was wet. It's an absolutely bonkers music video. Incredibly memorable. The track itself started as a joke. Mm-hmm. Like, Aphex Twin, he did a lot of things just to make him laugh. This is a man that once DJed with sandpaper. Just like, I was just hanging around my house, I was a bit drunk. 
I started playing around with this like shitty death metal jingle and turns out it got marketed, became popular and then we needed to make a video and it was Chris Cunningham. He shot it on the same housing estate that was used uh, for Clockwork Orange. Because there are even some who think that it was Aphex Twin parodying Firestarter and that's the sort of piss take that it was. It was just him messing around being like, oh, I'm going to write a, a song that's making fun of Firestarter and that's what Come to Daddy is. I don't I don't think it is. I don't think it is. Either. No. This little note here that I was just reading up, which is like, after a successful release, Aphex Twin claimed that he removed the record from circulation after one week, hoping to prevent it from reaching number one. <laughs> so I do not want Come to Daddy to be the song that takes Candle in the Wind 97 off the number one position. We want to talk about a change of pace, bloody hell. Yeah. I my, I, I love this song. It's, I, I really like the album that it's on as, as well. But for me, I, there's a cover of it by Dillinger Escape Plan when they were between singers. So just did an EP called Irony is a Dead Scene with Faith No More's Mike Patton. And the, the fourth and final track on that EP is their cover of Come to Daddy. And it is amazing because it's Mike Pat, one of my favorite vocalists of all time doing some bizarre stuff with his voice and while I don't think the EP is great overall although I do think it's the best thing that Dungeon Escape Plan ever did I'd recommend people go out and listen to the cover because it's an amazing cover On the 11th, Lilat Wars tops the video game charts for the Nintendo 64. Not a fan of the title change because, again, Star Fox is still a difficult one to sell in Europe at this point. But I love this game. It's probably one of my favourite Nintendo 64 games. It's certainly one of my favourite Nintendo 3DS games because the Star Fox 3DS, which is basically Star Fox 64 with a boost, is just chef's kiss. I made a joke about the Nintendo Direct that I think is either happening or has just happened or whatever at this point of things I want to see is I want a new Pilot Wings, a new F-Zero, an HD remake of Star Fox 64 slash 3DS and a cake. And I'm flexible on all of those apart from the cake. I love this game. It's what we got the Rumble Pad pack for with the Nintendo 64. And yeah, it's still kind of an on-rail shooter and it is still kind of a very much a restrictive and quick game. It's quite quick to beat. We're not talking Sonic too quick, but you know, you can do it in a single sitting. But oh, it's such a fun game. And it's just so polished and so well presented. I love that big box for it as well that you can buy oh, with the Rumble Pack and everything. To me, this is one of the absolute killer apps of the Nintendo 64. It was only there for one week, however, because on the 18th, Croc tops the video game charts another little mascot platformer and on the 25th we have a new number one at the top of the pops with the spice girls spice up your life as we inch ourselves very closely now towards the release of spice world the spice world movie and the last real high points of the spice girls as an act in the uk it's amazing like how quickly and how far they have grown and we're about to hit a massive crest of this wave and it's pretty much all downhill after this. This song, even by Spice Girl standards, is obnoxiously catchy. Oh, it's so good. I loved the first album. And then when this song came out, I was like, oh, okay, the second album actually might be better. I sent you uh, a text about this on uh, Christmas Day. I got it on vinyl uh, for Christmas this year. We'll talk about it a little bit more when we get into November when the album's released. But I put it on 
and the little crackle of vinyl happened and this song with that and i was like yeah i'm in spice up your bastards it's dead good is spice up your life it's a brilliant song a bonkers song as well really it makes no fucking sense whatsoever but i love it nonetheless i mean let's be honest a lot of the spice girls lyrics are actually fairly nonsensical although seeing some of the other songs we get to discuss next month they're not alone they absolutely are not but ash before we get out of the month of october what's going on in the magazine we don't get many nintendo 64 challenges on games master in fact in series 7 we get one and thankfully it's golden eye 007 on the nintendo 64 and it is reviewed right here in games master magazine it's amazing that we only get one 64 challenge isn't it with series 7 considering how much series 6 was built around the n64 now the smeg is out and they've got like nah it's all pc gaming now we never get to see the n64 in its full multiplayer glory we never get that four-player mario kart challenge we never get that full four-player golden eye it would have been a very long challenge but can you imagine a no mercy or wrestlemania 2000 or wcw world tour you know revenge or something exactly, like a, a yeah. four-player wrestling challenge i mean spoilers I already know what I'm going to pitch for a future UCP Live, and it's definitely going to involve four players in the Nintendo 64. But here we go. Here's Games Master's take on it. I'm very curious to know, because I don't remember what they said about it. Graphics? You won't see better than this for a very long time. Smooth, fast, and very impressive. 93%. That's a good start. Sounds? Loud gun blasts, various spot effects, and music all help to create a blast-happy atmosphere. 90%. Still good. Very good, very good. Gameplay. Mission-based antics and perfect control combined to make one of the most playable games ever. 94%. It's getting better. Lifespan. More missions would have been good, but those levels are huge and tough to complete. 90%. The thing that surprises me the most there is that's not talking about the multiplayer. Because I, I, I feel that's the thing with GoldenEye, is it? Is that, yeah, the single player is very good and the single player has got its missions and that, but you're always going to be coming back to the multiplayer. And so many reviews in Games Master magazine have always been that. Like, yeah, the single player is not much cop, but get your hands on the multiplayer and you'll be coming back to it again and again and again. So I find it very surprising then that in their last ability for GoldenEye on the N64, not a single mention of the multiplayer. Well, here's a really fascinating one. There is a box out on the previous page about multiplayer madness and talking about how this game came close to replacing Mario Kart 64 as the favourite office multiplayer game of the moment. Close but not quite. They talk about all the different deathmatch setups, choosing the weapons, setting the parameters. And then they show a bunch of screenshots and they show two-player split screen and that's fine. Then they show four-player, except they don't. They only have three players here on all of the screenshots. They only have three players playing. What was going on? Why did they not go the full four-player? And yeah, I've just checked the entire review. There is not a single four-player screenshot. The episode that it features in, it's also, it's like a Pilot Wing 64 challenge. It is three people, but it's three people doing the solo mission. I think it's odd that the magazine's only got three player pictures. Is it a case of there weren't four people interested in playing it in the office and it was only three people that wanted to pick it up? Maybe they only had three working controllers. 
could be that, but then I think they've always thought about how Mario Kart 64 is the big four-player game. Hmm, interesting. But, I mean, it doesn't hold it down too much because Judgment, the greatest movie license of all time and one of the best games you'll play for ages. Overall, 93%. It's a very, very good and respectable score. Because, And I think it's a score that, even on reflection, because you know when the, their remaster came out recently, there was a lot of bad faith takes of, this game is not as good as you remember. Nostalgia is doing a lot of the heavy listing on how good the game actually is. That, to me, feels like that is a score that even those who say, quote, it's not as good as you think it is, would say is fair, because it's not high 90s. That is like a low 90 score. That is a, it is a over 90s, but it's not like a 98%, for example. My argument on the not as good as you remember it crowd is actually, it's exactly as good as you remember it. But if you are still a gamer now and you have played more first person shooters since, your brain has adjusted to playing these games differently. I experienced it myself when I went back and I played Time Splitters 3 uh, during lockdown and going back to playing it on the GameCube pad. And that's where I would have first played it, on the GameCube. But now I'm used to the dual sticks on an Xbox or a PlayStation pad, and I'm used to that much more finessed analog stick. And as a result, the game is still great, but I'm used to much more accurate controls. So I think the game is exactly as good as it was, but the bar has moved for certain aspects. Yeah. I think that's where it is for me personally. As I go back and I play Goldeneye and I have to really fight to put myself in the right mindset to play it with controls from 1997. And it's not a problem for a lot of digital games. And by that, I mean a standard D-pad and buttons. So your SNES, your NES, your Game Boy. Because for the most part, D-pad and face buttons have remained the same. It's when you get into those analog controls and 3D movements that things get a bit more tasty and a bit more interesting. And my office thinks it's weird that I play speedruns on the D-pad because they're like, why don't you just use the analog stick? It's like, well, it's a 2D game. My mind instantly just puts my hands into that position because that's what's like almost natural to us. But if you put me onto a shooter, I will instantly go towards an analog stick. Moving into November, our the final month we'll cover, and we won't be covering the full one of it. On the first, Champ Manager 9798 tops the video game charts. I did sink quite a lot of hours into this one, but not as much as 96, 97. And Life is Plastic, and it's fantastic, because on the first, Aqua topped the charts with Barbie Girl. It's an annoyingly obnoxious song, but it's also very well written, very clever. And I do wonder, are we going to see it licensed properly for the upcoming Barbie movie? I would 100% think it has to be. Which sounds like it's going to be a fucking car wreck. <laughs> And I'm all in for it. Any movie that shoots scenes specifically for a trailer, I'm, I love. Absolutely love it. But on the same day, perhaps an even bigger monumental moment within music as Spice World is released upon the music listening public. This is it! Spice World! The brilliant new album from the Spice Girls. Spice World features the number one single, Spice Up Your Life. New single, Too Much, and this one, Stop! Spice World, the sensational new album from the Spice Girls. Out now! Yeah, this is an album, I got it, day of release. I remember in a newspaper, I think it was, or 
maybe it was in a magazine or something you could get coupons like every day and you'd get like a couple of quid off the cd release and i remember getting those coupons and going down on the weekend it came out to go and buy this and absolutely loving it and i think it is do i think it is it's better than the first album i having listened to it over the christmas period because i mentioned earlier i did get it on vinyl it is really really good and it's not just spice up your life or too much stop right now i've completely forgot it's got the pepsi song on it that's how big the Spice Girls were. They got the Pepsi license. They relate, They got the new song for Pepsi, Generation Next, which isn't a great song, but hey, it shows how big they were. They got the Pepsi deal. I think Lady is a Vamp is a good song. Yeah, I. you know what? I'll go, I'll go record now. I think it's better than the first album. Hey, we're all entitled to our spicy takes. <laughs> I just think it's a very, very good album. It's a strong second album. And there is often that joke about the difficult second album. That didn't affect the Spice Girls. It certainly didn't. And speaking of Spice World, we got the debut on the third of I'm Alan Partridge on BBC Two. And that's actually a line in the show where he goes, Spice World. I'm going to make sure you never, never work on television again. I'm on that bombshell. Never work on television again. Never, never. It's 4.35 a.m. You're listening to Up of the Partridge. Little swine's trying to get me on the other side. No way, Jose. No way. Did you used to watch my TV show? I loved it. <laughs> Aha! I'm Alan Partridge. Tomorrow at 10 on BBC Two. I'm your man. <laughs> I adore I'm Alan Partridge. It's my favourite of Coogan's run with the character. I loved Knowing Me, Knowing You. I thought this time was an amazing return to form. I've been told, though I've not heard it yet, from the Oast House season two is the best thing he's ever done. But for me, the two series of I'm Alan Partridge, um, peak Partridge for me, the first one where he's living in the hotel is so, so good. And it's got so many memorable lines and moments from it that me and my friends still quote to each other to this day. And the second season, I think is almost just as good, maybe even better. I read this and I think about it and it just makes me go want to go and watch some episodes. And just go and watch particularly that first episode with Cook Pass Babtridge on his car. It makes me want to go and rewatch it again because it's so good. You're not going to get any sleep tonight. You're going to be watching Perfect Day, then following it up with Alan Partridge. Oh, maybe, maybe I'll just watch one episode. I'll, maybe I'll just watch the episode when they go to the Cracking Owl Sanctuary. And uh, the reason that popped into my mind there is because my wife said to me recently, oh, me and uh, my friend are going to go to the Goat Sanctuary uh, with the kids. And I looked at her and was like, I know a cracking Goat Sanctuary. Did she laugh? She did, because she understands that reference. We've got more Spice Girls news. On the 6th, they make the decision to take over the running of the group and drop Simon Fuller as their manager. On the 9th, we've got a new movie at the top of the UK box office. It's Face Off. I've been um, chasing this guy ever since I joined the force. He, he has no conscience and he, uh, he shows no, no remorse. He's the mastermind behind numerous bombings and political assassinations. He uh, has a felony list a mile long, murder, arson, kidnapping, terrorism, you name it. He's the most dangerous and brilliant criminal mind I've ever known. I, for years, I've, I've been watching him, tracking him, studying his every every move. I know his every every mannerism, facial tick gesture. I know him better than he knows himself. 
And now, after all this time, I finally figured out a way to trap him. I will become him. Which is fucking bonkers. It is a case of, oh, we got Nick Cage. Who do we have that's as bonkers as Nick Cage? Well, John Travolta. Or conversely, we've got John Travolta. Who do we get that's as bonkers as John Travolta? Well, it's Nick Cage. This movie is so good and so so bad at the same time. Because not only is it, oh, we've got Nick Cage and we've got John Travolta, I wonder which one's going to out-bonkers each other. Because it's Nick Cage doing a John Travolta performance and John Travolta doing a Nick Cage performance. So it's just them doing impressions of each other's bonkers performances. And that's just what makes it even better. It's a perfect movie. It's a level of complicated because obviously they're acting bonkers and then acting a different level of bonkers on top of the other person's bonkers. It's a mind. F- it's so good. I love Face Off. The podcast series, uh, How Did This Get Made? did a double bill once. Uh, their first live show was Con Air and then the second live show was Face Off. And Jason Manzoukas came out and on the Face Off one, he said, I said this on the Con Air episode, but really we should have called this evening, thank God this got made. Because this movie is fucking rad. I, I need to do a double bill soon of Con Air and Face Off. I think it's actually a brilliant little double bill to be done. Maybe that's what I'll do this weekend. Or, you know, maybe that's a Saturday night little affair I'll suggest to my wife. Other bits of news. On the 9th at 6pm, BBC News 24 is launched, but only on cable. It's the BBC's first new channel since BBC Two in 1964, and also broadcast on BBC One through the night after close down. And on the 15th, one of my favourite games of all time tops the video game charts in Final Fantasy VII. But we won't talk about that now, because it's reviewed in episode one, I think. And it would just be me sharing my various different anecdotes from playing that game over the years, because I've played that game a lot over the years. Various different save files across various different memory cards, across various different machines getting to certain points, sometimes finishing it, sometimes not. I just absolutely adore that game. And yeah, call me a basic bitch all you want, because it is a basic bitch choice uh, to say that it's one of my favorite games ever, but it is. But our last news item here to discuss, on the 17th, speaking of controversial videos, The Prodigy released the single Smack My Bitch Up, which is censored on Radio 1, and the X-rated video is banned from daytime television, except for a brief late night rotation on MTV before being removed from broadcast two weeks later. This is an awesome track off an awesome album, and it is a brilliant music video that has got a Twilight Zone-esque reveal at the end of it. It's an amazing track. It's an amazingly evocative video. Did upset a lot of people on both the left and right side of politics. There was a motion put forward for Parliament to express its disgust and outrage at the advertising billboard campaign that was used to advertise the single. Jeremy Corbyn put his name to this. It was so controversial. It was the sort. It was the, it was the musical equivalent of a video nasty. You didn't want your parents catching you listening to this. No, absolutely not. Crikey, no, you don't want anyone knowing you're listening to this one. I mean, it got problems in the UK. It was banned. Parliamentary motion. BBC wouldn't play it in the States. Walmart wouldn't play it. Kmart stopped selling all of the Prodigy's releases, to the best of my knowledge. The National Organization of Women, a US-based feminist organization, called for the song to be banned. 
saying it's totally offensive, it's degrading to women, it's trash. It condones violence against women and we don't need to see that portrayed as entertainment. It's a dangerous message to children when anyone construes violation of women as entertainment. The M. Howlett of the Prodigy had this to say, To be honest, people, if they think that the song is about smacking girlfriends up, they're pretty brainless. <laughs> that is someone who has just looked at the title of the song and is like, that is what the song is about. And all of this happened, by the way, before the music video was made. It was controversy first, then the, video, the music video almost exacerbated the problem. And it was directed by a uh, former drummer of a Swedish death metal band, Jonas Ackerland, who moved on in careers, become a video director, never worked outside of his home country, and was kind of nervous about working with a band as big as The Prodigy and also possibly working with a band as controversial as The Prodigy, even though he was from a death metal band. And he was really struggling up to come up with a concept for the album until he went out on the piss with a friend in Copenhagen. Aha. And an exact quote from him, I woke up in a hotel room and all I could remember was my foot kicking in a door of a toilet cubicle and there was a guy taking a shit. <laughs> so my friend filled me in and told me that we'd done all this crazy stuff and gone to this strip club. So I decided to do the video of a party night inspired by that night. And in the end, you make it a girl because of the lyrics. That was yeah. his grand master plan. I went out, got pissed, and then plot twist at the end. It's not a guy. It's a girl. It's such a brilliant like rug pull uh, finale to the music video because it does present itself very well at making you think it's a dude the entire time. And because of the actions of the character, you assume it's a guy that's doing it. And like you never question it at any point throughout the music video until that final shot. And you're like, oh, shit, I, that's a, what a twist. I did not see that coming. When the video came out, MT refused to air it. BBC wouldn't go near it. It just made the profile of the song in the video go even higher. Uh, Ackerland, the director, said that in England they were really angry because of the violence, and in America they didn't like it because of the implied nudity. So in England, the feminists hated it, and in America, the feminists loved it. I remember somebody sending me a tape of this show with a priest talking about it in England, and I was like, what the fuck's going on? <laughs> the video got Firestarter being debated in Parliament again, and apparently, at August Reading Festival the next year, the Beastie Boys confronted the Prodigy and told them not to play the song live. Things have to be said. Things have to be understood. Now, last night, we received a call from one of the Beastie Boys. Wait a minute, hear me out. Hear me out. They didn't want us to play this f***ing tune. And the way things go, I do what the f*** I want. You understand? I love that entire album is great. The song and the controversy are great. Yeah, absolute banger of a track. Uh, which means our last news item here is on the 19th games master series 7 debuts but before we get to that desert island factory nice we uh, have another factory to pay a stop at we do indeed ash it's our last stop into the magazines for this episode anyway 
What's going on? Well, here we have the review of Castlevania Symphony of the Night, which starts with the headline, This has an undead vampire hero who sleeps in a coffin. Wonder why it landed on Les's desk. Harsh. Poor Les. I mean, Les is not keen on this from the off. I mean, not, not to wish to give away where we're going with the strike at Luki, but to read the first paragraph. When Konami announced they were working on a PlayStation version of Castlevania, imagination started to run wild. Would they move it into the 3D generation and come up with some kind of Castlevania Tomb Raider hybrid? What new elements would they add to move their 16-bit legend into the 32-bit community? Imagine the initial disappointment when I saw that the PlayStation version of Castlevania looks almost identical to the old SNES game. He knew it. That's what I said last week would be the thing. They were really annoyed that it's a 2D game. It's a bit like buying the new Schwarzenegger video and then getting it home to find that the shop assistant put the Teletubbies tape in the box by mistake. You'd be gutted. <sighs> I don't know how much that will have picked up on audio there, but that was a very big side there. Because also, that's not a that's not a fair comparison either. If your whole thing is that it looks like the SNES game, and then you're like, what I need here is a good comparison. It would be like renting a Schwarzenegger movie and being given the Teletubbies. That's not the same f***ing thing, is it? It would be like renting the new Schwarzenegger movie and then getting Hercules in New York. Renting an Arnie movie from the 90s, but it looks like an Arnie movie from the 80s. That is a fair comparison to his original complaint. It's not the best analogy. And also, on the big side, normally I edit out a lot of the big breathing noises because they can sometimes sound a bit weird. I'll leave that one in just for you <laughs> to make the point. Just, yeah, Les, I think you need to rework that. If I was your editor, I'd have told you to rework that. Luke, are you ready to try and strike it, Lukey, on this one? I'm so curious as to what it's going to be. And I will say as well, in fairness to Les, I do get it. Because I remember when the Mega Man X series came out to the PlayStation, there were people that were really pissy about it. When I say people, I mean, you know, critics and stuff. They were pissy that it was another 2D game because they were like, well, what's the point of 2D games? We're in a 3D world. This is not a new thing. We've seen this when Mortal Kombat 3 came out. Dave Perry's whole thing was like, it feels a bit passe now to release a 2D fighter when we've got all these other 3D fighters out there. It seems weird to be releasing a 2D game at this point. So I get it. In context, for 1997, it is a weird thing to do when everyone is making a 3D game to release a 2D game. With that said, it is a fucking massive game. It's not just a 2D game. It is an enormous game. But anyway, sorry. Anyway, let's get let's get to it. Let's let's play some Strike It, Lukey. I, I will say one thing he does highlight, and I do that means says this as kind of a positive, is he does like that you actually get to start the game by playing the last bit of the previous game as a kind of a previously on Castlevania. And I like that. I think that's a really nice way to do sequels. I would like to see more games do that, that are multi-parters of like, we'll let you redo the boss battle from the last game, maybe tweak it a bit, make it a bit of a different experience, but just to kind of fill you in. Yeah. But that's about where the positive ends. So, graphics. A few flash effects can't make amends for the jerky animation and SNES looks. Oh, SNES looks is fucking harsh. That's really outlandish. Also, jerky animation. Yeah, no, I know. Mate. It's not absolutely not at all. Right. Here's the thing, though. With Strike It, Lukey, you have to find your baseline, which is hard to do because it's your first guess. So, like, you know, it, I could say in the 70s here, but it might be wildly lower than that could be in the 60s. So my first one could either be close or way off the money, and that creates my new baseline. So I'll just say 72. 59. Holy shit, Les. 
Like, come off it. Sounds, plenty of speech as you would expect, and some spookily atmospheric background music. I was going to say, if he starts having, a, if he starts ragging on the music, I'd have been really annoyed. <laughs> It'd be one of the things he might have liked. I mean, it is moderately positive, but I will say, don't get carried away. <laughs> <laughs> so, fifty-nine was graphics, which means well, let's go into the sixty then. Let's say sixty-five, seventy. Imagine giving Castlevania Symphony Night seventy percent on its fucking soundtrack. Gameplay: some old formula with a few new bits added, which make it easy to play and rewarding. That's also fucking incorrect, Les. Okay, let's go. I'll stick in the 70s then, because that was also positive. There was no real negatives within there, even though he did say same old, same old. So maybe I want to go into the 60s. A designated 69 nice. 74. You should have stayed in the 70s. Lifespan. A huge play area with plenty of secrets to be found, but it can get a bit dull. That, do you know what that is? That is someone who did not play through the game. And in fairness to Les, he clearly didn't like it, so why would he want to play through more of it, aside from the fact that it is his job? Uh, but yeah, that does read like someone who didn't play through to the end, or, you know, get the end, get the you know, do the full game so you actually get the second half of the game. Kind of in the same way of the people that didn't really you know, review Sonic 3 and Knuckles and, and get all of the... Didn't complete the full game, just completed a version of the game. This reads like someone who completed just the first half of the game and thought that was it. Um, but on that note, say that was we were at 50 yards, 59, I believe it was. Then it was 70, 74. So let's say we're in the 70s again. I'll go with what my original guess was, which I believe was 72. The score for lifespan is 74. Okay. So yeah, I was a little off on that one, but I, I more or less sort of worked out where Les was going towards the end of that. So graphics 59, sound 70. Gameplay 74, Lifespan 74, Judgment. A disappointing 32-bit debut for Castlevania, which looks and plays like a six-year-old SNES game. That is a review that has aged like a f***ing pint of milk left out in the sun. (laughs) Not even a fine murder for this one. No. This is just aged like chunky milk. That is a review... Because even the Sonic 2 review hasn't aged as badly as that one. Because Sonic 2, I think they are justifiable. While I think they are overly harsh in it, and I, I know I ragged on that when we were back in Series 2, their lifespan argument, I think, is it, it justifies in their minds why they gave it so low. That review's just flat out bad. And, and when I say bad, I mean aged poorly. In the same way that Chris Hewitt's five-star review of Attack of the Clones has aged poorly. His reasoning for it at the time was, well, it was better than the, the Phantom Menace, and I gave that four stars, so I had to give this one five stars. That's your fault. That's you boxing <laughs> yourself into the corner. Yeah, and also, Phantom Menace is better than Attack of the Clones. Low bar, though, that is. When we had 59, 70, 74, 74? Correct. 70? Final answer? Yeah, I'll go final answer. 73. Mm, okay. It's a bad review. An unfair review. That's, that's what I'd say. It's not fair to say it's a bad review, but I think that's an unfair review of Castlevania Symphony of the Night. I would agree. I, I would still love to track down and maybe chat with Les. I'm sure that review would come up and it would be interesting to see whether his opinion has changed on Castlevania over the years. Or is he, you know, sticking to his guns? No, it's not as good as you think it is. I was right. I would say, and I think I've said this before, I think it's aged better than a lot of PS1 games. 
Particularly from this era. Yeah, but I think that's also because, in my mind, still a lot of the time, sprite-based games age slightly better than low-poly games. And also it's that digital control. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is aged better than most Saturn games. I think it is aged better than most early 3D games. And I think it is aged better than some of the 2D games that were being released on the PlayStation at this point in time as well. Six-year-old SNES game. Anyway, I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode, Ash, which means next week we will officially land on Paradise Island as we start the final 10 episodes of the original run of Games Master. It's going to be a weird old emotional time. New set, new vibe, slightly new style for the show, for the series that should never have been. It's going to be a very, very odd experience on this countdown to, to, to the end essentially yeah and it's literally particularly because the end of each episode is dominic diamond counting down every episode ends with him being like that's it nine more episodes to go that's it eight more episodes to go it's really going to feel like we're expediting towards the end particularly because there's only 10 episodes in the series and only nine of those are actual episodes uh, but that's all we've got time for on this episode of the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. You all rule. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at underconsolepod, on Instagram at under.console, and you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com. And if you want to get in touch with us in real time, if you want to chat with us, chat with other listeners, other fans of retro gaming, modern gaming, pop culture, all that good jazz, you can do so over on our Discord, which has had a bit of a spruce up recently, moved a few things around, created a few new channels, a few new roles, more changes to come, so it's a good time to come on down and join us. And if you want to support this podcast monetarily, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash underconsolepod, where you'll get access to UCP Extra and Underconsole Nation. And at the £5 level, you'll get next week's episode one week early and ad-free, which will be episode one of series seven at the 10 pound level you get a little bit extra ash what is that at the 10 pound level they get our glittery golden joystick waggle and mug stuffed with sweeties stickers retro trading cards pin badges and it'll find its way to you somehow <laughs> it'll just get there it'll just get there sooner or later probably and a shout out to those £10 backers, Zach, Xanderthal, William, Tom, The Amazing Cliff, Super Sexy, David Fisher, Simon, Selena, Sean, Pink, Lithium, Richard Downer, Retro Fun for Everyone, Reese, Phil Stopford, Nick, Misha, Matty Boom, Mark, Link, Liam, Kylie, Kevin, Joe Trigg, Joe Mitchell, Jamie, Ian Williams, Ian Roberts, I Am Cheadle, Harriet Manga Girl, Gordon Dempster, Gordon Brandt, David White, David Palmer, Chrissy Two Sticks, Chris Price, Arcadia Wild Bill, Andrew, Alexis, Adam Warrington, Adam D, Colin, and Andy. Thank you all so much. Right, and a little bit extra just right now is if you check the show notes on this, whether you're on Patreon or whether you're listening to this on the free feed, you will see a link to a Google form because I don't know about you, Luke, but I had a great time doing Under Consultation Live 2.0, particularly the live challenges. We're already setting the wheels in motion for Under Consultation Live 3, which is going to be all challenges, baby. There's going to be no audio podcast component to this show. We're going to be doing two different sets of challenges, and we want you to provide your suggestions. We can't guarantee we'll use all of them, but we'd like to hear your ideas and take them on board. So you will find a link to a Google form where you can make suggestions on classic challenges you want to see recreated. And if you've got a new idea for a challenge you'd like to see us put before an audience, 
You can also let us know if you want to be considered for those challenges should they come to fruition. So get your ideas to us now. I genuinely can't wait to see what people come up with. But until next time, we'll see you in seven days' time. Take care, everyone. Good night. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.